can take your Bibles and turn them with me to a text that probably most of you have never associated with Christmas, and that is um, John chapter 10, John chapter 10. And yet, as we continue in our sermon series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, uh, we find ourselves in this chapter this morning. Uh, It's a text really that is anchored in ancient Christmas promises that provide hope for all of God's people. John chapter 10. My very first pastor was a wolf in sheep's clothing, but I didn't realize it in the beginning. He taught us that it was God's will for you to be rich. And that if you had faith, God would bless you with money. And a part of what we needed to do to exercise faith and to be blessed financially was to give money to His church. You can see where this is going. But it turned out that there was really only one person in that congregation that was getting richer and richer, and and, and you'll never guess who that was. That was the pastor who we were giving all of our money to. The man that I was following was not a good shepherd. Rather, he was somebody who was victimizing the sheep, somebody who was using the sheep. Now, this is nothing new. There have always been bad shepherds. There's always been people uh, who prey on other people. In the Bible, Israel was plagued with bad shepherds, and God had a stinging rebuke for them in Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel chapter 34, look at what God says. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now, there is, there is no pastor that, that can read that section of Ezekiel and not shudder, as God has called us to be shepherds of the sheep, a very sobering text. And here God promises a weary and a broken and a battered people rescue from these selfish shepherds. And centuries later, 
When Jesus comes on the scene, the people are still being plagued by wicked shepherds. And we saw last week in chapter 9, Jesus healing a man born blind. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the shepherds, persecute this man. They cast him out of the synagogue due to his association with Jesus. They do not rejoice that his blind eyes have been opened, and they don't praise Jesus. Instead, these wolves who have been preying on the sheep for years see Christ not as Savior, but as competition, as somebody who is trespassing on their hunting grounds, threatening to take away the sheep that they are abusing. Now, In John chapter 10, Jesus is going to demonstrate himself as a superior shepherd by contrasting himself with these false shepherds. He's going to show us something about himself, and he's going to show us something about his relationship with you, his sheep. And we're going to see in the end what this all has to do with Christmas. So please stand with me now as we read this text. We we stand at Harbin's church before we read the sermon text as a way to remind us that this is the very Word of God meant to be treated with reverence and respect and meant to be heard with attentive ears. So let's read together John chapter 10, starting at verse 1. God's Word says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, 
These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your holy and inspired word, and Father, I pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear the Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Through this extended metaphor, Jesus reveals four specific ways that demonstrate himself as the superior shepherd. And the first thing that we see in our text today is that Jesus gathers his sheep. Jesus gathers his sheep. In first century Palestine, many villages at that time Uh, would have an enclosure that families would keep their sheep in. Uh, So there would be separate flocks in this enclosure, and each flock would have a different shepherd. And there was one doorway into this enclosure, and then there was also a gatekeeper or a night watchman, and he would make sure that only the appropriate shepherds got into that enclosure. And in the morning, the shepherds would then come, and they would retrieve their sheep. And the way a shepherd would separate his sheep from the others was simply by calling them, simply by speaking. It's really an amazing thing when you think about it. You've got all these sheep, they're all mixed together, and the shepherd now has to come, and he has to to get his own sheep, and he simply calls, and only the sheep that belong to that particular shepherd would come out and follow him because they would recognize his voice. Other sheep would not come because they did not recognize his voice. And that backdrop helps us to better understand Jesus' metaphor when he says, starting in verse 1, 
Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So there is this special relationship, there's this special connection, this bond between the shepherd and his own sheep. They're they're so close that his sheep recognize his voice and follow him. Now, as we step out of that metaphor and perceive its meaning for us, we see a couple of things. First of all, this passage underscores the point that people who genuinely belong to Jesus will follow Jesus. Jesus calls, and then Jesus' people, Jesus' sheep, they know and recognize His voice, and then they follow after Him. Now, the practical implications of this are clear. There are many people today who call themselves Christians, who say they believe in Jesus, who say they belong to Jesus, and yet they do not follow Him. Uh, There are people who would identify themselves with Jesus. They may even go to church. And yet at the same time, such people are in no way following Jesus. They're not even interested in following Jesus. They're not living for Him. They, They don't care about what the Bible says about how they should live. They are callously breaking the law of God and even living in willful, blatant sin and rebellion against Him. My friends, the Bible has no category for a Christian who is not a Christ follower. It has no category for a sheep who totally ignores the shepherd. So the question is not whether or not you say that you are a Christian. The question is rather, when you hear the voice of Christ... Do you follow Christ? It's that simple. When the shepherd calls, when you hear Jesus' voice through the reading of Scripture, through the preaching of of His Word, are you drawn towards Him or do you run away from Him and get as far away as possible from Him? Friends, if you are part of the flock of Christ, you will respond to His voice when He calls. Not perfectly. Sometimes sheep can wander off. Sometimes sheep can go astray. That's why we need a good shepherd to help bring us back into the fold. Perhaps that's you this morning. Uh, Perhaps you have strayed and wandered off. And if that's you, I'm so glad that you are here this morning. Because my prayer is for you uh, to hear through the preaching of Christ's word. To hear the voice of the shepherd. And that you're going to recognize that voice and you're going to return back to your shepherd who is coming after you this morning to bring you back into the fold where you belong. But notice, it's not simply that we, God's sheep, know and recognize Jesus' voice. Look down at verse 29. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, while it is essential for us to know Jesus... Oh, what a sweet comfort it should bring to us that we are known by Him. He knows us. And so Jesus says in verse 3, the sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name. By name. 
There is one large flock of God. We're talking millions upon millions upon millions of sheep. But Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, doesn't see you as a nameless and faceless sheep in the crowd. You're not just another number. You are deeply and personally and intimately known by God. God knows you and God notices you. Some, some Christians tend to think that God only is paying attention to the important Christians. Billy Graham. God knows Billy Graham. John Piper. Great missionaries who are laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel. He certainly notices people like them. What, what does he care about little old Deemer Webb in Decula, Georgia? You ever feel that way about yourself? Well, what does God care about my little insignificant trials and problems? God's got bigger things to worry about than me. Now, if Jesus were a bad shepherd, maybe it would be that way. But let's remember the point of Jesus' metaphor here. He's a good shepherd, and the good shepherd knows every single one of his sheep by name. It's not just that the good shepherd is shepherd of the whole group, but Jesus is a personal shepherd for each individual sheep. He calls them out one by one by name. That's why David in, in Psalm 23, David was a shepherd himself, so he knows something about this. That's why David in Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, David would have been correct to say that the Lord is our shepherd. He's the shepherd of Israel. But throughout that entire psalm, David revels in God's direct one-on-one care for him personally. And so throughout the whole psalm, he uses the first-person singular pronoun. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down by still waters. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Friends, Jesus knows you personally, and he is concerned for you personally. No other human leader can offer the kind of personal attention that Jesus does. President Trump knows a lot of people, but guess what? He doesn't know any of you. He doesn't know you. You, you can't reach, reach him today and expect personal attention and help from him. Folks, that's how it is with, with all human leaders. I should say other human leaders. Jesus is God, but he is man. Jesus is different. Jesus enters into your world, your little personal sphere. He knows what's ailing you. He knows what's troubling you. He knows what you're afraid of, your peculiarities, your hang-ups, your suffering, your needs, your struggles with sin. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so that's why the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, can confidently encourage you to cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Praise God, we have that kind of shepherd. So we see Jesus gathers His sheep, but we also see that Jesus cares for his sheep. Jesus cares for his sheep. Sometimes if a shepherd were far away from home, he would make a temporary shelter for his sheep. He'd take some brambles and he would build a circle surrounding the flock to keep them from wandering and also to discourage predators from getting to the sheep. And at night, uh, he would lead the sheep into that protective ring and then the shepherd himself would lay down in the gap. He would lay down at the entrance himself. And so in a very real sense, he would become the door. You had to get through him to get to the sheep. 
And in the morning, when he arose, he would, he would lead them out of that enclosure to pasture for nourishment. And then at night, he would lead them back in for safety, which helps us to understand better his metaphor starting in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. There were false prophets. There were false shepherds who came before Jesus, including those Pharisees. And Jesus says they are thieves and they are robbers. They're out looking for themselves. They don't care about you. They don't care about the sheep. That They will not provide life. Jesus is saying that the, the way to spiritual safety and protection, the way to real provision in life, is through Christ alone. He's the only doorway to these things. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And by salvation, Jesus is not simply talking about avoiding hell and going to heaven when you die. Salvation biblically means much more than that. It's more than just heaven in the future. Jesus, in contrast to the thieves and to the robbers who only came looking to fleece the sheep, Jesus says in verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've sought for life and peace and satisfaction in many things. And I'm here to tell you that it will not work. You might receive a temporary shallow fulfillment in your career, in relationships, in materialism, in your family, in sinful pleasures. But all those things do is distract from or dull or numb the ache you have for something more. And in the end, those things are going to fade. They will not bring you life. If you're trying to find true life in other things apart from Christ, the Bible, in Jeremiah chapter 2, compares what you're doing to a man dying of thirst and at the same time ignoring refreshing streams of water. And instead, what you're trying to do is satisfy your thirst through drinking from leaky, broken containers, cisterns. It will not work. You will die of thirst. The things that you are turning to apart from Christ will not satisfy your thirst and your cravings for more. Because you are made to find the fullness of what you need in God. And not just in heaven, but right now. And it's why God says in Isaiah 55, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. God here offers himself as the thing your heart has been craving for all along that nothing else has been able to fill up. And in John 10, Jesus is offering the same thing. That's what Jesus means when he says, anyone who enters in by him will go in and out and find pasture. It's the idea of sheep being totally protected and free to eat to their heart's content. Be satisfied and be nourished. It's a, it's a picture of spiritual flourishing. It's a deep satisfaction and peace that money can't buy and nothing else in this world can provide. That's why Jesus said in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that, my friend, is something that no mere religious guru or preacher or political leader can deliver. The only way to real abundant life is to enter in through the door, to enter in through Jesus and Him alone. So believe on Him today, enter into Jesus' flock, hear the shepherd's voice, and follow Him, and be saved. Now, how does Jesus secure this kind of wonderful gift for the sheep? How, how, does, he, how does He do that? And that leads to my third observation, and that's that Jesus lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus lays down His life for the sheep. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Now, the hired hand is not like the thieves and robbers mentioned earlier, pillaging the sheep for their own gain. Instead, the hired hand is somebody who's willing to look after the flock and receive his pay as long as the work is not too dangerous. He's a hired hand. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, he cares more about his own skin than the sheep's. Jesus, though, is different than the hired hand. And and really, he's different than your typical shepherd. Your average, decent shepherd will attempt to defend his sheep from wolves and other wild animals. Uh, we, we discover this in First uh, 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 Samuel uh, chapter 17. We read about David uh, before he was king. He was a shepherd. And we read about him killing a bear and a lion to protect his flock. Uh, he was willing, he was prepared to risk his life. But Jesus does something more. While a decent shepherd will be prepared to risk himself to protect his flock, no shepherd willingly offers his life up for the sheep. It's never the plan of a shepherd to die. Right? Your typical shepherd, that's not on his bucket list for that morning. When he wakes up and plan, I'm going I'm to eat breakfast, and I'm going to go out, I'm going to call my sheep, we're going to go out, I'm going to feed them, and then I'll just, you know, I'll die. That, that, that'll be a good plan. No shepherd does that. And besides, the death of the shepherd w- would accomplish nothing for the sheep anyway, right? He'd be dead, and the sheep would be slim pickings for the next predator to come along. But Jesus, on the other hand, being a superior shepherd, not only lays down his life for the sheep, but he intended to do it all along. Verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And why would Jesus plan to do this? (laughs) Why would he plan to lay down his life for the sheep? Because while the death of any other shepherd accomplishes nothing for the sheep, the death of Jesus, the good shepherd, the superior shepherd, his death accomplishes everything. Unlike other shepherds, it's the death of Jesus that actually secures his sheep. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Not that Jesus ever sinned, but you have, and I have. And if we're going to be rescued from paying the price of death for our own sin, and ultimately that death climaxes with eternal spiritual death and hell, 
If we're going to be set free from that death, from that condemnation, we need a substitute. We need a perfect, sinless representative to be condemned in our place, paying the price of sin on our behalf. And so in His death, the sins of the sheep were punished in Jesus. So now, all who believe in Him won't experience death for their own sins in hell, because that death has already happened in Christ. What's more, we we are guaranteed victory over physical death, because Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, has walked through the valley of the shadow of death before us and emerged from the tomb three days later. He has conquered sin, and He has conquered death on our behalf. So, my friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't an accident. It was never an accident. And it wasn't something that just happened and then God had to figure out how to make some good come out of it. This was part of the plan all along. His death and His resurrection were intended by Jesus from the very beginning to provide for His sheep. And so now, we don't have a dead shepherd. That would be useless to us. Instead, we have a shepherd who lives forevermore and intercedes for His people. And not only does Jesus' death reconcile us to God, but Jesus' death also reconciles us to one another. So notice what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So here, Jesus reveals his intention in bridging the age-old division between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are are non-Jews. They are the other sheep that Jesus is referring to. And there was a lot of animosity between these two groups, between Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus is showing us that it was never the intention of God to have a people racially divided. There's not meant to be two peoples of God. Instead, His goal has always been one people, one flock, with one shepherd. And we see this this theme talked about even earlier, actually, in the book of John. So, for example, uh, earlier in John's Gospel, the Apostle uh, quotes John the Baptist, who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of... Okay, some of you know that. All right. Who takes away the sin of what? Of the world. Or, let's let's, let's do another one, all right? Let's let's see. Let's see this. All right. Or, in John chapter 3, it says, For God so loved the... Oh, good. Awesome. I knew you were there. He loved the world that He gave His only Son. Jesus is gathering sheep, my friends, not just from Jews, and not just from white people, or one particular tribe. Jesus is gathering sheep from every language and tribe and tongue around the world. Jesus is going to bring these diverse groups together, formerly groups that were in hatred and hostility towards one another, and He's going to unite them so there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. The the answer to, to the racial tension and animosity in our world is the gospel. It really is. And it will not be fully and finally solved apart from the gospel. The racial unity that Christ's death accomplished is beautifully described in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul writes, for he himself, that he's talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so the goal of Christmas really is to bring peace on earth to all who trust in Christ, peace between man and God, and peace between man and fellow man. So Jesus lays down his life for his sheep, which naturally flows into our next observation, and that's that Jesus secures his sheep. Jesus secures his sheep. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Folks, there are Christians who are living in fear, and and maybe you're in that category this morning. Fear that they have committed one sin too many. Have you ever felt that way? I have crossed the line now. God may have forgiven me before, but I've just pushed it too much with God now. I've crossed the line, and I don't know if I can be forgiven now of this. I've just made the same mistake over and over and over again. I fail over and over again. I can't believe I've fallen into this sin for the 500th time. And some Christians fear that they're going to be expelled from the flock and that they will perish in hell. There are really Christians, genuine Christians, who live in that, in that tension. They struggle with that. Their whole denomination is built on that idea. Scaring the flock into thinking that they could actually be expelled from the flock and perish. Now, I'm going to be really blunt about this. If it is true that a genuine Christian can lose their salvation and go to hell, then Jesus Christ has just lied to you. He's just lied to you, plain and simple. Now, I know some people are going to say, now, wait a minute, Deemer. You mean to tell me that someone can just claim to be a Christian, pray some little prayer when they were five years old, and then they can just live a totally godless life and give themselves over to sin and never follow Jesus Christ and never be interested in that? Where they said this prayer, you know, in Sunday school class at age five or whatever, and you're saying they're going to make it to heaven? That's not what I said. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He doesn't say, my sheep hear my voice and ignore my voice and they forever run in the opposite direction. But genuine sheep can and do sometimes stray. Don't you? We sing about it here sometimes, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But Jesus encourages us by telling us that despite that, the sheep are never ultimately lost. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Do you know what never perish says in the original Greek? Never perish! It's not rocket science. Actually, in the Greek, it's a little bit stronger. It's like a, a, a double negative. It's, it's more powerful than it is uh, in the English. But that's the point. 
My sheep will never perish. So, if a genuine believer ends up losing his salvation and perishing in hell, then Jesus has just lied. But we know that Jesus is not a liar. In a few chapters, Jesus is going to say, I am the truth. We can trust what he says. Folks, if he loses a few sheep here and there, if Jesus has a 95% success rate, you know, he has a flock and he loses 5% of them, that's nothing to brag about. He would be a bad shepherd. But Jesus says he's the good shepherd, indeed the perfect shepherd, and he will not lose one that the Father has given him. What's more, to drive the point even further home of the security that the sheep have in the shepherd, he says, nothing can snatch us from his hand. And it reminds me of another song that we like to sing around here, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. You will not be plucked. And then some say, well, could I jump out of his hand? Don't be cute. Don't do that. Don't miss the point of what Jesus is saying. The sheep will never perish. They'll never perish. They'll never perish. Jesus goes further. That wasn't strong enough. He appeals to God Himself. Verse 29, He says, My Father, who has given them to Me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Friends, That's a powerful statement. Is there anyone strong enough to steal from God Himself? Can someone sneak up on God and and, and, and capture one of the sheep and and sneak away with Him? And God wakes up and is like, oh no, I had 100, now I only have 99. And finally, Jesus gives His ultimate reason why we are secure in Christ. He says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, when we hear that statement with 21st century Gentile ears, we have a hard time recognizing the force of what He is saying. Jesus is not just simply saying, the Father and I are on the same page. Jesus is making a a much bigger claim than that. And so, let's go back now to Ezekiel 34. We're going to come full circle here. In the the beginning of this message, we, we read the first half of Ezekiel 34, where God denounces the wicked shepherds. But in subsequent verses, God promises a solution. He promises the people relief. He promises them a good shepherd as opposed to those other ones. And as we read this, I want you to ask yourself the question, who is the shepherd? What what is the, the identity of this shepherd that God is promising? So, we go now to Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and all the inhabitant places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture 
they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat, and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now let's go down to verse 21, just a few more verses. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So, who's the shepherd? Well, it depends on what verses you're looking at. Verses 11 through 16 are pretty clear. God is declaring that He Himself will come down and be the people's shepherd, and He's going to succeed where the false shepherds have failed. Uh, Again, think about that first-person language throughout this chapter. He says, I will search for my sheep. I will feed them. I will make them lie down. I will be their shepherd. But if you look at verses 23 and 24... God says, my servant David will be the shepherd. He shall feed them. He shall be a prince among them. Now, by the time Ezekiel is written, King David is dead and gone. God instead is speaking of a descendant of David who will one day come. So who is the shepherd? Is it God, according to verses 11 through 16? Or is it David, according to verses 23 and 24? Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you've seen this type of thing before. There are various Old Testament promises where the final restoration of all things hinges on either God Himself visiting His people, rescuing His people, or God sending His servant David to do so. And in some passages, these two themes come together. So, for example, you've got a passage like Isaiah 9, a classic Christmas text, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it and with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So... Who is the one to come? On the one hand, he is a child who is born. He is a son who is given. He is the heir to David's throne. But on the other hand, he will be called Mighty God. So who is this one that will come? In Isaiah chapter 9, the Davidic Messiah and the Mighty God They come together in one person. And the Gospel of John tells us in the very first chapter that the Davidic Messiah and the mighty God have come together in the person of Christ. And so John opens his Gospel in chapter 1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word. That's another name for Christ. And the Word was with God. And the Word was 
God. And so we have two persons described in John chapter 1. Both are identified as God. They're two distinct persons, and yet they're also one. Hear, O Israel, the Jewish Shema says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And John tells us in John chapter 1 that the person identified as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us that first Christmas 2,000 years ago. So going back to Ezekiel 34, the shepherd seems to be God himself. And he is also David's greater son. He is both of those things. And those two identities come together in the person of Christ. And that's why Jesus, the son of David, can on the one hand say that he is the good shepherd, and on the other hand, he can turn to the crowd and say, I and the Father are one. And those with first century Jewish ears got the message loud and clear. And it's why in verse 31 they pick up stones to kill him. They are ready to give him the death penalty for the blasphemy of claiming to be God. And in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus' argument there is not complicated. It's simple. He's saying if there is a sense in which the term gods may be legitimately applied to men, human leaders, judges, spiritual leaders in Israel, how much more legitimate should such a term be for Jesus, who is in his very essence and nature God the Son, unlike those who had came before him. And so the revelation of the true identity of the Good Shepherd, while a source of angst and consternation for his opponents, is a source of glorious good news for you and for me. Because it is the main reason why we believers can be confident in the security that we have in Christ and the Good Shepherd, because the Shepherd turns out to be God himself. As the prophet Micah wrote, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, he shall be their peace. Now, if Jesus is the Davidic servant, the God who is shepherd of Ezekiel 34. If Jesus is the Son who is the mighty God of Isaiah chapter 9. If He is the shepherd king who is not just from Bethlehem, but from ancient days in Micah chapter 5, then you as His sheep have nothing to fear because your very shepherd is God Himself. And if God be for you, who can be against you? Some of you in this room are a part of Jesus' flock, but maybe you have strayed. Maybe you've been tangled up in some sort of sin. Maybe you've wandered down a path opposite the way the shepherd is urging you to go. If that's you this morning, please know that life and peace is not found in that other direction, and you know that's true. Instead, hear the voice of the good shepherd who is calling you back to himself, only with him is their true life and safety. Maybe others here are struggling with fear, with anxiety, 
Afraid that God is done with you because you failed one too many times, remember that your hope is found in Christ alone, not in your performance. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. Don't hope in yourself. Hope in the shepherd. Hope in Christ this Christmas. His power and his strength keeps you in the flock, not your own. There are others in this room who may have walked into this building this morning, not part of Jesus' flock at all. But now, something strange is happening. You are hearing his voice this morning. And suddenly, that voice seems recognizable now for the very first time. And your heart is being drawn towards him. I urge you to heed his call. Confess to him that you're a sinner and that you deserve his judgment. But take hope in the fact that the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. Trust in his sacrifice to save you. and Follow him as shepherd. That's all you have to do. And if you've heard his voice today, and you are responding to that in your heart, I would love to talk with you and pray with you about this and answer any questions that you might have. I'm happy to do it. Pastor Jeff, who was up here earlier reading Scripture, is happy to do it. Any Christian in this room would be happy to do that. We would love to talk with you and pray with you after the service and welcome you into the flock of the Good Shepherd this Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world as the good shepherd who has come seeking his sheep, as the one who comes gathering his sheep, as the one who came to lay down his life for the sheep so that they might be saved and so that they might be secured in his flock forever. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.